Volume One, Chapter Three, Part One of Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in June two thousand and eight. Volume One, Chapter Three, Closed Doors. Francis Hogarth was waiting for Jane at the railway station, and as they walked together to his house in the outskirts of the town, she eagerly asked him about the situation he had heard of that he feared would not suit. Her cousin hesitated a little, for it seemed so far below her deserts and her capabilities. But Mr. Rennie, the manager of the bank in which he had so long been employed, had told him that the institution, the principal asylum for the insane in Scotland, and an admirably managed establishment, wanted a second matron, and that from the accounts he had heard of Miss Melville's practical talents, it was probable that she would be the very person to fill the situation well. Jane eagerly asked after the duties and the salary, but Frances could not give her all the particulars she desired. Mr. Rennie was to see one of the directors of the institution on that evening, and was to make inquiries. He had some influence with one or two of the directors, and would use it in Miss Melville's favour, if she was disposed to apply for it. It was expected that there would be at least fifty applications for it, and a little interest was a good auxiliary even to the greatest merits in the world. The duties, so far as Frances knew them, were the active superintendence of a large number of female servants, and the charge of all the stores, both of food and clothing, required for a household of several hundreds, who could none of them think for themselves. He did not know if she would come much in contact with the patients. He hoped not, for he thought it would be a sufficiently exhausting and anxious life without that. He had heard that the institution parted with the present occupant of the situation for incompetence, that there had been both waste and peculation. I feel sure that my superintendence of my uncle's household, and my knowledge of accounts, should enable me to fill such a situation well, and from the number of applications, and the responsible nature of the duties, the salary should be handsome," said Jane. I think I should send in an application, and I feel obliged both to Mr. Rennie and you for the suggestion. The establishment is well managed. You know it is one of those to which my uncle's property was to go in case you disobeyed his injunctions. He had a high opinion of the kind and rational treatment of the patients there. I do not see any objection to mingling with them, either. I might be very useful." "'It seems a throwing away of your talents and acquirements to make a mere housekeeper of you,' said Frances. "'It is not such an insignificant office, after all. What contributes to the comfort and happiness of a family every day and all day long is surely as valuable a thing as much book-learning, and to keep such a large establishment going smoothly and satisfactorily requires much care and thought, and a particular kind of talent which I think I possess, and which such a life will develop. When can I see Mr. Rennie, and when can I send in my application?" "'Mr. Rennie particularly desires to see you to-morrow morning, and if you like the prospect he holds out, your application can be sent in immediately." When they reached the small but prettily situated cottage occupied by Frances, Jane was agreeably struck with the comfort and neatness of everything about it. The furniture, without being costly, was good of its kind. The very excellent collection of books was methodically arranged in ample bookshelves, and carefully preserved by glass doors. The bright fire in the grate, for though it was called summer, it was but a bleak, cold day in Edinburgh, and the respectable-looking middle-aged woman who had just laid the cloth for dinner, and now brought it in, all gave an air of comfort and repose to a dwelling much humbler than she had been accustomed to live in, but far better than any she could hope for a while to occupy. There were on a side-table a few costly articles of vertu, and a magnificent folio of engravings, which had been bought by Mr. Hogarth since his accession to fortune but substantial comfort had been attained long before. Jane was rather surprised to see the large proportion of poetry and fiction that filled the bookshelves. 
Little did Mr. Hogarth the elder suppose that the bank clerk, whose outer life was so satisfactorily practical, had an inner life, whose elements were as fanciful and unreal as poor Elsie's. His taste was certainly more severe and fastidious than hers, for he was older, and had read more. But his love, both of art and poetry, was very strong, and had been to him in his long solitary struggle with fortune a constant and unfailing pleasure. He had found in them some amends for the want of relatives and the want of sympathy, and now his heart turned with strong affection to both of his cousins, and especially to the one who treated him with so much delicacy of feeling and such generous confidence. It was like finding a long-lost sister. There was so much to ask and to answer on either side. Jane liked to talk of her uncle, and Francis's curiosity about his unknown father, whom he had only occasionally seen at long intervals as a stranger who took a little interest in him, was satisfied by her clear and graphic descriptions of his opinions, his talk, and his habits, whilst she, beginning a new life and doubtful of the issue, eagerly asked of his early experiences, and liked to chronicle every little step in a steady and well-deserved progress. Though Jane had such a practical turn of mind, and such an excellent education, it must not be supposed that she knew much of the world. Educate women as you will, that knowledge is rarely attained at twenty-three, and she had lived so much in a utopia of her own, fancying that things that were right were always expedient, and that they should always be valued for their intrinsic worth, that she did not see the difficulties of her situation as clearly as many people who had not half her understanding. She and her uncle had been too apt to talk of things as they ought to be, and not as they actually were. With all Jane's quiet good sense, there were points on which she could be enthusiastic, and on this evening the successful cousin was struck by the warm expressions of an optimism in which he could not share, uttered by one who had good cause for complaint and dissatisfaction. When the cousins went together to the Bank of Scotland on the following day, and were shown into Mr. Rennie's private room, Jane's hopes were somewhat damped by the details she received about the situation. The duties were even greater than she had supposed, consisting in the active and complete superintendence of a great many female servants, and a slighter control over a still larger number of female keepers, who also acted as housemaids and chambermaids. The control of the workroom, so as to see that there was no waste, extravagance, or pilfering there, the arrangements necessary in the cooking and distribution of such large quantities of food, so that each should have enough, and yet that there should be no opportunity of theft, and the watchfulness required to prevent any of the girls employed in the establishment from flirting with any of the convalescent gentlemen. The wages given by the directors had been too low to keep servants long in the place, or to secure a good class of girls who would be above dishonesty or other weakness, and this made the duties of their superintendent particularly irksome, while there was a good deal to be done for the patients themselves, though not so much by the second as by the upper matron. All this seemed a formidable amount of work for one head and one pair of eyes to do, and when Jane was told that the salary was thirty pounds a year, and that so many applications had been and were likely to be sent in, that great interest was necessary for success, she was by no means so decided on sending in hers. Even the privileges next to the situation, of a small bedroom for herself and a parlour shared by two others, with a fortnight's holidays in the year, though very necessary to prevent the second matron being removed speedily into one of the wars, did not seem so tempting as to revive Jane's last night's enthusiasm. "'Surely,' said she, "'the payment is very small for the work and the responsibility.' "'There is so much competition for a thing of this kind,' said Mr. Rennie. "'There are so many women in Scotland who have too little to live on, or nothing at all, that they will gladly snatch at anything that will give them food and lodging, and the smallest of salaries.' I know of a situation of twelve pounds a year that received forty-five applications from reduced gentlewomen. The payment is never in proportion to the work. 
"'But the work has been done badly hitherto, I understand,' said Jane. "'It is not having too little to live on that makes a woman fit for such a situation as this. Why do not they raise the salary and insist on higher qualifications?' "'I cannot tell why they do not, but so it is,' said Mr. Rennie. "'Is there any chance of rising from second to first matron?' asked Jane. "'That is worth ninety pounds, you say.' "'In the course of fifteen or twenty years, perhaps. But the duties are very distinct at present, and require different kinds of talent.' "'Yes,' said Jane, "'and great interest with the directors might get a new person in, and fifteen or twenty years' services would have less weight. I do not feel inclined to work twenty years for thirty pounds, even with a better chance of ninety pounds at last than is offered here. It is at best a prison life, too, not the life I had hoped for, nor what I am best fitted for. My cousin's place is filled up here, I understand.' Every one below Mr. Ormiston has got a step, and we only want a junior clerk. No doubt we will have plenty of applicants. "'Will you take me?' said Jane. "'Do not shake your head, Mr. Rennie. Cousin Francis, speak a word for me. I am quite fit for the situation.' "'If you could do anything to further Miss Melville's views in any way, you would lay me under a deep and lasting obligation, Mr. Rennie,' said Francis. "'I have most unconsciously done both of my cousins a great injury, which I am not allowed to repair.' My late father had as much confidence in this young lady's talents and qualifications as he had in mine. I know she is only too good for the situation she asks for." Mr. Rennie was disposed to try to please Mr. Hogarth. He had always had a high opinion of him, and had great confidence in his judgment and integrity. He was to take the chair at a dinner given to the whole bank staff by this man who had advanced all his subordinates one step, and left them pleased and hopeful, and he could make the usual complimentary speeches with more sincerity than is common at public dinners. He had also introduced the new laird of Cross Hall to his wife and family on equal terms, and they had been very much pleased with him. But when Miss Melville again gravely asked for the vacant clerkship, his habitual courtesy could scarcely prevent him from laughing outright. "'It would never do, my dear madam,' said he. "'Young ladies have got quite a different sphere from that of ledgers and pass-books.' "'But I would do the work,' said Jane, opening a ponderous volume that lay on the manager's table, and running up a column of figures with a rapidity and precision which he could not but admire." Then, on a piece of loose paper, she wrote in a beautiful, clear, business-like hand an entry as she would put it in the book, showing that she perfectly well understood the rationale of the debit and the credit side of the ledger, and then, gravely turning to Mr. Rennie, she asked him why she would not do. "'It is not the custom, my dear young lady. I can get young men in plenty who want the place. I have no doubt that you can, but I want it too. And in consideration of the prejudice against my sex, I will take the place and accept the salary you would give to a raw lad of sixteen though I am an educated and experienced woman of twenty-three. I want something that I can rise by. I would be satisfied with the career of my cousin, without the fortune at the end. Young women in Paris are clerks and bookkeepers. Why should they not be so here?" "'France is not Scotland, or old, weaky Paris. We consider our customs very much better than the French. Why, you know quite well it would never do. You would turn the heads of all my clerks, and make them idle away their time and neglect their work. You do not see the danger of the thing." "'No, I do not.' answered Jane. Do I look like a person who would turn any man's head? If I do such mischief, turn me off. But I ask, in the name of common sense and common justice, a fair trial. If I do not give satisfaction, I will stand the consequences." The serious earnestness with which Jane pleaded for so strange an employment, the matter-of-fact way in which she stood upon her capabilities without regarding suitabilities, impressed Francis Hogarth, while it embarrassed Mr. Rennie. It was impossible to out-reason so extraordinary an applicant but it was still more impossible to grant her request. Skilled as the banker was in the delicate and difficult art of saying no, 
It had to be said oftener and more distinctly to Jane Melville than to the most pertinacious of customers to whom discount must be refused. I admire your spirit, Miss Melville. If one thing cannot be accomplished, you must try another. But in an establishment like this, you see, I could not possibly take you in. A private employer might admire your undoubted ability, but I am responsible to a board of directors, and they would decidedly oppose such an innovation. Your sex, you are aware, are not noted for powers of secrecy. I dare say it is a prejudice, but bank directors and bank customers have prejudices, and no one likes any additional chance of having his affairs made public. You know you are talking nonsense, my good sir, said Jane. It is because women have never had any responsibilities that they have been supposed to be unworthy of trust. Where they have been honoured with confidence, they have been quite as faithful to it as any men. But, my dear madam, said Mr. Rennie, what would be the consequence if all the clever women like yourself were to thrust themselves into masculine avocations? Do you not see that the competition would reduce the earnings of men, and then there would be fewer who could afford to marry? The customs of society press hard upon the exceptional women who caught a wider field of usefulness, but I believe the average happiness is secured by by a system that makes forty-five educated women eager to give their life's work for twelve pounds a year, and fifty applying for the magnificent salary of thirty pounds for a most exhausting and responsible situation. These are not all exceptional women, Mr. Rennie, but many of the average women whose happiness you are so careful of. You know there are enormous numbers of single women and widows in this country who must be supported, either by their own earnings or by those of the other sex, for they must live, you know. Mr. Rennie smiled at Jane's earnestness. "'You smile. On ne voit pas la nécessité,' said Jane. "'I dare say it would really be better for us to die.' "'I am sure nothing was further from my lips than either the language or the sentiment. I think your case especially hard—especially hard.' "'I thought it was, till I heard of these numerous applications. And the sad thing to me is, that it is not especially hard. Some innovation must be made. Have you and your directors not the courage to begin? I am willing to endure all the ridicule that may be cast on myself. There are other departments of business where your unquestionable abilities and skill might be employed and well paid for, but here, I must repeat, it is impossible. Impossible? Perfectly impossible. Mr. Hogarth is going to favour us with his company this evening, and Mrs. Rennie and my daughter Eliza would be most happy to see you. I would like to introduce my daughter to a young lady who knows business so well. You will be good enough to pardon my necessary incivility. Most painful to me it has been to refuse your request, backed by such excellent reasons. But you will accompany Mr. Hogarth, and show you are not unforgiving." Jane accepted the invitation willingly. Francis was not pressed for time. The bank had released him without the usual notice, so he offered to accompany his cousin wherever she chose to go. End of Volume 1, Chapter 3, Part 1 This recording is in the public domain.